since California was home. Uh, we left California with our three-month-old daughter, who's now 10. Uh, we now have an eight-year-old son uh, and a six-year-old son. So hearing that read was hard to remember. There was that time in California before kids, living near the beach, living near Disneyland, living, living near mountains with snow about an hour and a half drive away. A little different than the Midwest, though there are many things about the Midwest that my wife and I have grown to enjoy in our 10 years being here, and it's just sweet to see our kids love this place and and see it as home, and in many ways, this is what feels like home uh, for my wife and I now and our kiddos. So I invite you uh, to open up your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is going to be our text for this morning. I invite you to open it up. We will, ha- we will be looking at different verses there to ensure that we're seeing what God wants us to learn. You may glance that it's a song of ascents. Uh, there are 15 psalms considered the psalms of ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. And this essentially was a small songbook that uh, the people would have used as they traveled from where they were living at various times of the year to Jerusalem for the different festivals, or about three festivals that they had to come back to and sing at. I mention that because this psalm, though it may not be a familiar psalm to you, would have been very familiar to the people at the time. In a similar way that we, around Christmas, sing songs like Joy to the World, and though we sing it once a year, it's a very familiar song to us, well, these psalms would have been familiar songs to them as they sang them aloud, traveling with family and friends to the city. So as we're looking at it, I want you to keep in mind that these were themes that would have been familiar for the people. So let me read for us our text this morning, Psalm 130, starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The one who wrote this found himself in verse 1 in the depths of despair in some kind of position where he understood he needed help. And in light of needing that help, he raises his voice and he cries for help, hoping someone would hear him and someone would help him. A few years ago, a college student named Lucas went cave exploring with the campus caving group. And they went out on a Sunday And at some point in their expedition, Lucas got separated from the group. Hours later, as Lucas found himself finally making it to the exit, which the exit would have only been about three foot by a foot hole that they had kind of broken through the the wall, as he arrived at the exit, he found 
that the caving group had already left for the day, shut the gate, and locked it. So he's now, Sunday evening, alone in this cave, obviously forgotten by the people who had brought him there. He knew there was a road not too far away, so he began, in his depths of need, crying out for help, hoping that anybody would be out there who would hear him. On Tuesday, so that was Sunday, on Tuesday, his friends realized not having seen him for a few days on campus was not a good thing. They should probably figure out where Lucas was. As they tried to kind of backtrack and figure out what he would have been doing, they realized he would have been on that caving exploration trip, reached out to that group and said, hey, was Lucas with you? That caving group realizes we might have left him. So they raced there that Tuesday, and thankfully, Lucas was still alive. Now, I I bring up that illustration because that man needed help. He cried out in desperation for a day at least, but nobody was there to hear him or to help him. Now, in God's kindness, people came later, but in that moment, he needed help. Nobody was there to hear him or to help him. Our author of our psalm this morning is crying out in his need, but he knows that God is actually there to hear him and to help him. And in a similar way for us, as we find ourselves in the depths of our despair, we can cry out to God knowing that he will hear us and help us. This psalm uh, is summarized by one author as coming out of a, a steady climb from the depths to redemption. Verse 1 starts in the depths of his need, and verse 8 ends in the confidence that God is the one who f- redeems and forgives us. This psalm captures for us great news about who God is and how he acts in this world. To help us understand this psalm, we're going to use five questions to kind of ask and answer using what the psalm provides for us. So the first question we're going to ask is, do you know the depth of your guilt? Do you know the depth of your guilt? Verse 1 makes it obvious. The author himself feels himself in the depths, feels himself separated and in need of help. Well, what is it that's causing him to feel this way? I think verse 3 provides for us the answer to that. The author asks, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Well, we know the, the answer to that. Our God, being a holy and a righteous God, for us to stand there in our sin, well, we are going to be judged. There's no hope for us. We will not stand before him if he should mark our iniquities. And this isn't just the author saying he knows about his own sin. He's saying with honesty, God, if you were to make the record of my wrongs known, even to me, you knowing me better than I know myself, who could stand before you? Well, the author understands that he couldn't. He understands that because of the sin in his life, he is accountable to God. 
Now, notice who he knows God to be. Uh, There in verse 3, you'll notice that when he says, O Lord, the first time, that it's small caps there. And then the second time he he speaks to Lord, he uses a different name for God, which is why it's just the capital letter and the lowercase letter. The reason for that is when he says, if you, O Lord, initially there in the beginning, he's saying, if you, Yahweh, if you, a God who makes and keeps promises, if you, a God who wants to know me personally and have a relationship with me, if you, Yahweh, were to mark my iniquities, who could stand? He goes on there in that second point, as he's using uh, the name of God there, he's using the name Adonai, which is another name for God that speaks of his, his power, speaks of him as king. So he's saying to God, O Lord, O Yahweh, you who know me well, if I were to stand before you, Adonai, the powerful one, the king, in my sin, you revealing my sin, well, who could stand? Well, he understands that he couldn't. And that is leading him to feel guilty. It's leading him to feel accountable to God. He recognizes that on his own before God, he has nothing to protect himself from him. I would imagine that all of us in this room have felt something similarly as we grow in our understanding of who God is and his holiness and his kingship and his power. And then we compare ourselves to him. It's likely that you have felt regret or shame or despair or embarrassment when you just stop and consider yourself before God. It could be that there are smaller sins that come to mind, whether it be arrogance or anger or bitterness or grumbling or laziness or hypocrisy, things that you know that God knows about you. It could be that there are what some might call bigger sins, Though sin is sin, there are some sins that stand out from others, whether that be sins like lying or stealing or sexual immorality or addictions. When we we stop and compare ourselves to God and our accountability to him, we feel our guilt. We feel the depth of that guilt. And the reality is, it's appropriate when we feel that. In fact, Christians ought to feel their guilt most accurately. Because we as Christians understand who it is that we've sinned against. We've sinned against the Lord. And we as Christians ought to understand that in our own strength, there's nothing we can do about it. It's not as if we can just stop sinning and start doing perfect living, and somehow it's going to balance out in the end. We as Christians understand our guilt before God most accurately. May I remember learning that motives matter. I was a high schooler before I started going to church, so a lot of gospel truth was new to me, and a lot of what it was to sin was new to me, and I still remember being taught, 
your motives matter. It's not just enough to have done the right thing. There has to be motives behind it that drive the right thing. And I thought, well, my goodness, this is hard and it's worse than I thought. I remember also learning that it's not only about the wrong things you've done, but it's also about the things you should have done that you didn't do. I thought, well, okay, this is really, really hard. Paul says it clearly, I think, in Romans 7 when he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? So when you and I feel our guilt accurately and we feel the weight of what we're accountable to before the Lord, we're in good company. We're where Paul was. We are where this author was. But notice where this guilt drives this person. The guilt drives him to God. So our first question was, do you know the depth of your guilt? Our second question is, do you urgently plead for mercy? Notice again what happens in verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And we know from verse 3 that those depths he feels is because of his sin. Verse 2. O Lord, hear my voice. Hear my words. I'm crying out for you. Hear me. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Lord, lean over and bring your ears closer to me. Be attentive to my pleas for mercy. Well, in this moment, we're watching this author, this psalmist, urgently plead for what he knows he needs. He's not saying, please help me clean up my life. Please help me do better. No, he's saying, I I just, I need your mercy. I, I can't do better than what I've done. And even left to myself, it's only gonna get worse. My only hope with you is your mercy doing for me what I don't deserve. In a moment like this, we're watching an inferior plead with a superior. Do for me what you can do for me that I could never do for myself. If you go back a few psalms to Psalm 123, we get another clear picture of someone pleading for mercy as an inferior to a superior. In a position where if that person in that superior place does not do for them, there's going to be harm for the person who needs that mercy. Psalm 123 verse 1, the author says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Do you feel that difference? Inferior to superior? We do not sit on a throne in the heavens. We are down here seeing God on that throne. Verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. If a master or a mistress did not feed and care for their servant or maidservant, Those servants and maidservants could not then go care for themselves. They were utterly dependent upon them. 
Well, in the same way, the author here in Psalm 123 is saying, so our eyes look to you till you have mercy on us. Unless you extend that mercy, we cannot care for ourselves. So back in our psalm this morning, Psalm 130, the author is saying, listen to my pleas for mercy. I understand my guilt. And unless you extend mercy to me, I will be left in my guilt. I will be stuck in my guilt. The reality that our forgiveness before God depends on his mercy towards us is unique to what it is that the Bible describes as forgiveness. This is unique to truth. When you compare that message of mercy being what extends forgiveness to us to other religions, it, other religions are not built on mercy. They're built on merits. They're built on doing things to either pay off your debt or to earn the favor of God. In college, uh, I, I went to college on the West Coast, and it was uh, for a few years we would take a missions trip up to Utah. And we did that to be able to go and evangelize Mormons. I did not know much about Mormonism, and so I sincerely went into conversations with people with sincere questions. If I wanted to be in heaven in God's presence, what would you tell me would need to happen to get there? And that was like my leading question. Just explain to me, how could I have hope or confidence I'd be with God for eternity? I remember we were evangelizing on a college campus and had met uh, a a college student who was about my age. And we kind of snuck in, not snuck in, but we went into one of the, the libraries that was there and we sat down. And in that conversation was just asking him, if I wanted to be in heaven, what would I need to do? And he talked a lot about obedience. Well, it matters that you do what's right. And God has revealed to us what things we must be doing. So you should be doing that. You should be attending church on Sundays. You should regularly be a part of the service activities that your church is doing. There are many things to stay away from. As long as you are staying away from those things and obeying in these ways, you might have a chance. And I just remember being stunned by that because it's so different than what we find in Scripture. So I remember opening the Bible, King James Version, they believe is uh, an accurate translation or at least one of the more accurate ones. So able to open the Bible with him and say, well, that sounds so different than what I see God saying to us. And I remember just showing him different passages that emphasized God's mercy towards us, his forgiveness to us because of his work in and through Jesus. And I remember, I still remember the student looking at the verses and going, I've never read that before. I've never heard this before. No one's ever taught me that before. So I remember asking him, like, well, this is what God says, and it's different than what you were saying to me. I'm just curious, who are you going to choose to believe? And he sat back and he thought about it, and sadly his answer was, well, I I think I'm going to stick with what my parents have taught me and what my church has been teaching me. I thought, ah, it's a false gospel. It's not good news. The good news is that our God is merciful to us. He's someone that we can go to and plead urgently for mercy. 
and not even going to him and asking him to act out of character. As if we need to go to God and say, hey, I hope you're having a good day today. I'm feeling my guilt. Would you please extend mercy? No. Look at who it is that our God is, even just from our psalm. Look at verse 7. This is who we can be convinced we're going to. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. That is what is true about our God. To go to God and ask him to treat us mercifully is to go to God and ask him to live towards us in his character. Who he's revealed himself to be. Who he's proven himself to be. Now what is interesting is in verse 1 and verse 3, the author is saying, I am accountable to God. Before the Lord, before him, because of his holiness and his righteousness, I'm accountable to him. And yet somehow, though he's accountable to him, he also knows and is convinced that that God is his only source of hope. Which, if you just think about it for a moment, seems strange. I'm most fearful of you because I'm accountable of you, and yet I'm coming to you for the mercy I'm convinced you have. Well, how can we be convinced that our God is merciful? Well, in many ways, he has disclosed that about himself, right? I mean, we read about that even in verse 7 here. He's saying, I, the Lord, am filled with steadfast love, and with me is plentiful redemption. He's disclosed it. But he's also proven it. He's proven it to us. You think about the person who wrote this psalm and how much of the Bible they likely would have had revealing God's acts to him. Well, what kind of acts could the author of our psalm have thought back on? Well, one of them would have been Adam and Eve. Adam commits sin. Adam and Eve both feel their guilt and their shame, and they hide themselves from God. God was very clear. If you do this, you shall die. But what happens in the narrative? What happens in that event? Well, what could have happened is the moment that Eve ate and Adam ate, they both could have died. And if that's what we read, we wouldn't be reading of an angry, mean, ogre God. We'd be reading of a just God who followed through on what he said he would do. So it's actually more surprising that they're not dead. Then they're hiding. Well, God could have just bellowed, come out. I know what you've done. But what does he do? He finds them and he asks them, why are you hiding? He's inviting them back into relationship with him. Then as, and you would think, that might be the time that Adam goes, okay, I'll come clean. It's all my fault. But what does he do? Well, God, it's her fault. And what does she do? Well, God, it's the serpent's fault. So even in that moment where you would think, well, here's their chance to show they're worth his mercy, they're sitting there still in sin, showing the brokenness of this relationship. 
And even then, God could have taken their lives, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He actually covers them with clothing. And he actually makes a promise to them. I know that you've broken things, but somebody's coming that I'm going to send who's going to make things right. That's what God does. Well, what does that reveal about God? It reveals that God is a merciful God. It reveals that he's one we can go to and plead for mercy. You think forward a little bit in Genesis and Cain kills his brother Abel. That's a major sin. Well, what does God do? God has a conversation with Cain. And Cain sits there and says, God, I think your punishment is too much. It's too much for me to bear. And God shows mercy in changing that punishment. You think ahead to the time of Noah, when God is saying, I'm going to wipe this world clean and start over. But then he shows mercy and grace to Noah and his family. You think ahead to the time of Israel. They get delivered from Egypt after 400 years. And how do they react? God, we are so thankful and we are going to be so obedient to what you've asked of us. No, they grumble and they complain and they talk about the fact that Egypt was better. The leeks and the cucumbers and the onions were better than this manna were being served, which is just so odd to think of how quickly they forgot what their time in Egypt was like. I don't think they were eating cucumbers and leeks and onions. But somehow in their sin, they're sitting there saying, this isn't good enough. Deliverance after 400 years of enslavement, not good enough. Manna from heaven, quail in the desert, not good enough. But what is God's response? It's mercy. It's grace. So when this psalmist is feeling his guilt and his despair because of his sin, he knows that he can go to God and ask for mercy, and God is a merciful God who will give it. Well, think about what you and I also know about God that this psalmist didn't. This psalmist was still looking forward to God fulfilling his promise of sending one to make things right. We are on the other side of that. We look back to Jesus Christ and we see that God has sent his son that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. How do we know that our God is merciful? Because of Jesus. So the question is, do you urgently plead for mercy? An author I enjoy reading, J.C. Ryle, he lived in the 1800s. He talked about familiar truths like old paths. And old paths was a phrase that he used to describe walking trails that you just walk and enjoy. It's familiar to you. It's an old path. You don't have to think much about it because it's one you're often on. I think a good question for us is, is God's mercy an old path for us? Are we daily finding delight in God's mercy? Are we daily going to God and considering his character of mercy and grace and love and delighting in that? Is it an old path for us? 
I think, I think it ought to be. And I think our psalm gives us reason to make it a more familiar path for us. I think another question that we can ask of our psalm, do you truly fear the Lord? Do you truly fear the Lord? Did you notice the intent of forgiveness explained to us in verse 4? Look at what he says. But with you there is forgiveness that, that what? Why? Why is there forgiveness? That you may be feared. To speak of fear here is to speak of awe and respect and love. To to think of what it is to fear God, it's to worship Him, it's to praise Him, it's to thank Him, it's to serve Him. The psalmist is saying, those who have been forgiven by God, who have experienced His mercy, are then those who fear God. If we're forgiven, we'll fear Him, we'll respect Him, we'll be in awe of Him, we'll love Him, we'll worship Him, we'll serve Him. Fearing God in our lives will change our affections. Not only will we find ourselves less enjoying what this world has to offer and less enjoying sin and its empty promises, but we'll find ourselves growing in our affections for God. It's what this biblical fear does. It stirs our affections for Him. That biblical fear also then drives our obedience. We as Christians, we as those who have experienced mercy and forgiveness, are to be those that Paul describes as zealous for good works. Not doing good works to earn favor or to somehow pay back mercy, but doing good works out of the fact that God has forgiven us out of the fact that we get to now present our members as righteousness, to righteousness, like Romans 6 says. We get to live this way. The fear of the Lord in our lives will strengthen our effort and our intentionality in the way that we serve God. It's important for us to see that. Do you truly fear the Lord? And not just give lip service, oh yeah, God is an amazing God, and God is powerful. And every Sunday when I'm here at church, I think about Him. And then I don't for all the other days, and I live the way I want to, but on Sunday, I recognize who He is. That is not fear. You may know something about God, but you don't actually know God. Because when you know the God that this psalmist knew, When you know the mercy and the forgiveness that this psalmist knew, it changes you. It affects you. It transforms you. Now, question one, ask the question, do you know your guilt? Question two, ask the question, do you plead for mercy? And question three, do you truly fear the Lord? Guilt, mercy, and fear. Well, those three ideas, guilt, mercy, and fear, are closely related. Another way of thinking about it is this. If you don't feel guilt, you won't seek mercy. If you think your sins are not that bad, 
and you actually can get a handle on them, and if you actually think that your good works are actually kind of good and somewhat impressive, you're not going to feel guilt. And if you don't feel guilt, then you're not going to feel the urgency to plead for mercy like our psalmist did. Maybe you do understand your guilt, but you don't plead for mercy. Why isn't pleading for mercy a more regular practice for you? Well, it could be that you don't know your sin well enough. It could be that you overvalue your merits, or it might be that you have a wrong view of God. Because there are times where we actually feel our guilt. We feel that shame. We feel that embarrassment. And the idea of going to God with that guilt terrifies us. And not in a healthy, godly fear kind of way, but terrifies us. That might be you. Well, why is it you're not pleading for mercy? Well, the reason is because you don't know God as he's revealed himself. If you know God in the way that he has disclosed himself and proven himself, then you will go to him with your guilt and your shame for the help that you need. Well, how do you help straighten out what your view of God is? I just commend you to go to the cross, to go to Christ, and to think about Jesus Christ and what that proves about God's love for you. Or maybe fear is the difficult part. Maybe the idea of feeling your sin and asking for forgiveness and mercy is simple, but, but the fear aspect of it is the difficult part. Well, if you want to grow in your awe for God, then understand more the gift you've been given in forgiveness. If you really do slow down and meditate on the guilt you had because of your sin— and the mercy that was extended to you because of his grace, if you just sit in that, that will lead you to grow in a greater fear and awe of him. Maybe another way of saying this is this. We want to grow in being convinced that your sin is worse than you presently know. That's true for all of us in this room. Our sin is worse than we presently know. And some of us know our sin pretty well, but God knows it better. It's worse than we know. Which also then means that mercy is greater than we presently know. And some of us have a pretty decent understanding of mercy because of the sins we've been forgiven. But even still, we don't know mercy to its fullest extent. And God is more worthy than you presently know. That is always true. We are limited creatures trying to understand an infinite creator. And if you find yourself feeling like you got it, like you understand him fully, you don't. Which takes us back to the first point. Your sin is worse than you know. And his mercy is greater than you know. And God is greater and more worthy than you know. Our fourth question, 
Do you confidently wait for the Lord? Look at our psalmist's posture towards God. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman of the morning, more than the watchman of the morning. He waits with his soul. His soul waits. All of who he is is in the activity of waiting. And I meant to say it that way. The activity of waiting. Some of us just consider waiting as this passive effort. Well, I guess I can do nothing, so I'll sit here till something happens. Well, that's not the kind of waiting that the psalmist is describing. Notice he's saying, more than the watchman for the morning, my soul waits. Well, watchmen did not passively sit on the walls of a city sleeping until the morning. They had a job. Their job was to watch for any dangers throughout the night. Why are they watching for the morning? Because it's hard to stay up all night. And their shift is over once the sun comes up. So not only are they vigilant to see dangers, but they're also watching the horizon. Maybe the sun's coming up soon. I served as a youth pastor for a number of years, and one of the events we did was called an all-nighter. And it is what it sounds like, something you do all night. You lock yourself away with a few adults and dozens of kids, and you just play all night long until the morning. Between 3 and 4.30 in the morning has never been pleasant, ever. And for whatever reason, in settings like that, we would do things that just don't sound normal during the day. We, one time, got a rain, uh, we purchased a rain gutter from the store because it would be clean. We filled it with ice cream and toppings, and we handed spoons to the students. And we said, have at it. Oh! And then we gave them straws because, you know, it had melted. Oh! All-nighters. I do not like all-nighters. But what I knew was going to happen was it was going to end because morning was going to come. So by three or four in the morning, my mind is thinking about when does the sun come up? When did we say the parents could come and get these children? We're almost there. We're almost there. Well, that was these watchmen. The watchmen with confidence that the morning would happen. I mean, do you realize morning is so normal to us we don't think about it? Right? Like we don't wake up and go, oh, it happened again. The sun. Now, I know during the winter, the sun seems to disappear, but it, it is daytime, right? I mean, we can at least tell. But none of us are walking around like, hey, it's morning again. I wonder if it'll happen again. No, it's just so normal to us. But when your livelihood is sitting there waiting for the morning, there's a confidence it's going to happen. You're just waiting for it. Well, in a similar way, the psalmist has confidence has confidence in the Lord. He's waiting for the Lord. Notice also what he says about that waiting in verse 5. He's saying, my soul waits for the Lord. In his word, I hope. Why does he have confidence to wait for the Lord? Because it's an informed confidence. There are divine promises that have been made for us promises that we can find in his word that God will prove faithful to fulfill. 
we are able to wait with confidence on the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says this about waiting. He says, waiting is beneficial. It tries faith. It exercises our patience. It trains us in submission and endears us to the blessing when it comes. The Lord's people have always been a waiting people. They waited for the first advent when Christ came, and now they wait for the second. I mean, again, notice the psalmist was waiting and was waiting for the Messiah to come. We're on the other side of that. The Messiah has come. The light has dawned, is how it's described in the Gospels. It says the people sat in darkness, but the light has come. The morning, the dawn of the morning has begun. But we're still waiting. I remember as a high schooler, I had only been in the church for a few years, I knew Jesus died and raised from the dead, and I knew by faith and repentance that I was a Christian, I had never heard that Jesus was coming back. And I remember just standing there with a few of my buddies from youth group, and they just started talking about, like, yeah, when Jesus comes back. Like, he is? When? Cool. Why? Right? I mean, just this brand new, like, of course that makes sense. He raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and then it all just kind of stopped for me there. Like, well, that, that's enough to know. Well, he's coming back. And we as Christians are those who are now waiting for his return. We're not like the psalmist in the dark of night waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah's come. The morning's begun. But we're now the watchman waiting in the midst of the day for the full day when he comes back and brings his kingdom and changes this world to something new. We're waiting for those things. And we ought to be more confident than the psalmist was and more eager than the psalmist was in light of all that we know to be true about God and his promises. Do we confidently wait for the Lord? The last question to consider, do you encourage others to hope in the Lord? I mean, by the time of verse 6, we recognize that though he feels the depth of his guilt, he also has hope and confidence. He understands that somebody is going to hear his cry and that somebody is God. And God, who is merciful, is going to help him. Notice what happens in verse 7 and 8. Notice who he talks to. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he'll redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Notice, he's speaking to others around him. He's saying, hey, all of you, let me get your attention. Hope in the Lord. Hope in him. There's someone to go to for mercy. With the Lord, there's always steadfast love. With the Lord is plentiful redemption. He will redeem you. He will forgive you of your iniquities. The psalmist doesn't keep it to himself. He goes to others, and he wants others to know what he knows. I mean, if you know this to be true of God, how can you be silent? 
It's part of who we are as people, right? What we're excited about, what we're eager about, we talk about. We talk about food with each other. Oh, I just ate here and it was amazing. I had a conversation recently about pillows because they had a great pillow. And I thought, well, I want a better pillow. And I bought it. It's a great pillow. But we talk about these things because they're exciting to us. It's, it, we want others to benefit and enjoy the things that we've enjoyed. Well, if we do that about food in pillows... Should we not also then be talking about the Lord, our merciful, loving Lord who forgives? Knowing our guilt, knowing God is merciful, growing in our fear of Him, waiting confidently and eagerly for Him, encouraging others. This is normal Christianity. This is what it is to be a Christian. This isn't exceptional Christianity. This is just normal. This is what it is to know God, to know our sin, to know forgiveness because of Christ. This is normative for the people of God. May God be at work in us for this to be seen as normal in our lives. Let's pray.